Hey everyone and welcome to the 39th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I brought Matthew Petty from the Quincy Institute on to talk about the 2001 and 2002 authorizations for use of military force. I haven't covered these before, but they're very important and have been used to justify military pursuits without declarations of war. I hope you enjoy this one. Also, remember to like, share, and subscribe. I'm on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Here's Matthew. Awesome, Matthew. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, do you want to just introduce yourself really quick, give a little background about who you are? Sure. So I'm Matthew Petty. I'm a reporter at Responsible Statecraft, which is the online magazine of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Um, I was a reporter at the National Interest magazine for a year before that. Uh, I cover, I mean, I cover Middle East stuff mostly, but I also have an eye on U.S. Uh, war powers debates and the kind of developments within U.S. foreign policy in Washington. And you also, you had a cover story with Reason, right? Yes. Uh, way back in 2017, I believe it was about Iraqi Kurdish refugees in Nashville, Tennessee, who are, I mean, this is kind of what got me into journalism. It was, I was covering the Iraqi refugee community in Nashville and how both the Iraq travel ban or this, you know, Muslim ban, as they call it, uh, affected them, and then the deportation efforts after that, because the Trump administration had made a deal with Iraq to start deporting, op- reopening old deportation cases um, in exchange for taking Iraq off the travel ban list. Mm. Yeah, well, I wanted to bring you on to talk about your recent article about the AUMFs. Um, and before getting into that, for the listener, do you want to just go into the background, maybe starting with the original constitutional authority? of war powers going to maybe uh, the war power resolution after that, and then 9-11 as a precursor? Sure. So, I mean, under the article, Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, Congress has the power to declare war, to raise armies uh, and a navy, uh, to regulate the U.S. military, um, to raise militias, and, well, we don't use this one anymore, but to uh, grant letters of mark and reprisal, which is privateers. Uh, Anyways, I mean, the point of this article of the Constitution is that Congress is the one who, Congress has oversight over matters of war and peace, and Congress decides when the U.S. gets involved in war. Now, since World War II, that hasn't been the case. Our last declaration of war was during World War II. um, And since then, you know, throughout the Cold War, presidents have gotten us involved slloly into conflicts and, um, slowly escalated them uh, and always called it something short of war. Uh, The Vietnam War was kind of the last straw. And in 1973, Congress passed the War Powers Resolution, which requires the president to notify Congress within 48 hours of conducting military action overseas and blocks blocks them from staying more than 60 days. However, it's not really been enforced. Congress has invoked this very rarely. Uh, it's never successfully been used to pull U.S. troops out of conflicts, although recently Congress voted to pull U.S. troops out of Yemen and then President Trump, former President Trump, vetoed it. Um, so that's that's basically how matters of war and peace are decided today is uh, neither the president nor Congress, they kind of dance around the question, but neither side really tests the other. 
Mm -hmm. And now when it came to the AUMF of 2001, um, can you talk about like 9-11 and the debate around that and then get into the language in that AUMF particularly? Sure. So um, Congress started issuing, I think in with the Gulf War in 1991, Congress started issuing what they call authorizations for the use of military force, which is, again, it's like a declaration of war, but it's short of war. We don't call it that, but this is kind of a reassertion of power by Congress. But the text of these AOMFs has been extremely broad. Um, so the 1991 AOMF, I think, authorized the president to use force for specific UN resolutions regarding the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. The next one in 2001, which was after 9-11, um, authorizes the use of United States armed forces against those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States um, and those who harbor them. So this is kind of vague, right? It doesn't name Al-Qaeda as the culprit. It's meant for Al-Qaeda and people harboring them, the Taliban. But it's vague enough that they've used this for basically any like armed Islamist group with a fake connection to Osama bin Laden. Um, what's even more vague is the 2002 AUMF. This is the Iraq War AUMF. The Iraq War is not exactly a result of 9-11, but it's kind of, it's folded, it's really a continuation of the 1991 war, but it's was justified in terms of the war on terror and it's kind of folded into the war on terror. So in 2002, Congress passed a, another AUMF that was, most of the text of it is just outlining like all the ways that Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi dictator at the time, is a menace to world peace and U.S. security. And then there's this paragraph at the end that says the president is authorized to use the armed forces of the United States as he determines to be necessary and appropriate in order to defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq and enforce all relevant United Nations Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. The 1991 AOMF had laid out the specific numbers of the resolutions. This one is basically, I mean, again, from the preamble, it's clear. It's talking about the threat by Saddam Hussein, but the actual text authorizing force just talks about the threat posed by Iraq and Security Council resolutions. Yeah, so in, in your most recent article, you, you kind of go through the recent history of the AUMFs and which military operations these AUMFs have justified. Um, do you want to talk about that and kind of interweave the history of the attempts to repeal the AUMFs and where we're at today? Sure. So my article focused mostly on the 2002 AUMF. Um, but yes, both AUMFs have been used to justify things, I think, far beyond what Congress knew they were voting for. Um, the 2001 EMF has been used to justify, I mean, all sorts of overseas contingency operations against Al-Qaeda in Yemen, in Afghanistan, which, you know, was intended. I think Pakistan, Yemen, I believe Libya. Um, again, basically any Islamist group connected that carries arms and is connected to Osama bin Laden. Um, the 2002 AOMF is a little bit more interesting. So again, it's, it's geographically bounded, Iraq. And so in 2011, the U.S. ended our first occupation of Iraq, um, pulled, pulled U.S. troops out, uh, agreed to have a much 
more limited uh, non-military presence in Iraq. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be the end of the war. We had set up a new Iraq post-Saddam Hussein Iraqi state, and we were getting out. And so there was a push um, within Congress by both kind of anti-war conservatives and uh, progressives to get that authorization off the books. First of all, it was kind of a a no-brainer victory for war power. Like, you know, it, this should be the most basic thing that Congress does is once the war is over, they take the authorization off the books and that shows that Congress is involved uh, in decision making. But also there was an idea like, you know, the 2012 election was coming up. John McCain was running on the idea that we need to stay in Iraq for 100 years if necessary. And so there was an idea that if, you know, violence picked up in Iraq, a future Republican president uh, could use the 2002 AMF to send troops back in, which, as we'll get to, is exactly what happened, but not under a Republican. Um, so, you know, there was kind of they wanted to foreclose, you know, an Iraq War three. Uh, and there was a push to to get rid of this. Um, it actually it had bipartisan support. It was both Rand Paul and Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, and they wanted to get, they basically, there's a, the military budget is this huge bill called the NDAA that passes every year. It's must pass because no one's going to vote to 100% defund the U.S. military. And so members of Congress use it to put things in that they maybe couldn't pass as a standalone. Um, there's like thousands of amendments. It's I mean, the most recent one, for example, uh, they renamed bases uh, that were named after Confederate generals. They had stuff with family leave. It's just, you know, this is how laws pass in the U.S. They have these huge budget bills. And if it's something small that you don't think you'll get on its own, you put it in the budget bill. Um, so, yeah, Rand Paul and Kristen Gillibrand made an NDA amendment, proposed an NDA amendment that would just wipe out the 2002 AOMF. No more Iraq war authorization. Again, this seemed to a lot of people like a no-brainer. But then uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, wrote a letter to John McCain, which he kind of dramatically read on the Senate floor, authorizing, uh, arguing that the U.S. military still needed the 2002 AOMF. Um, he said it's for limited wind-up activities normally associated with ending a war. Um, I can't really figure out who in the Obama administration authorized that. Because people I talk to say that it wouldn't have been Dempsey on his own, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he's allowed to authorize, con uh, to advise Congress, whatever he wants, he can say whatever he wants to Congress, independently of the civilian leadership at the Pentagon. But Dempsey is not the kind of guy who would do that. But nobody seems to remember, uh, <laughs> none of these former Obama administration officials I talk to seem to remember whose idea it was. Uh, there is an idea, though, that I, people agree, though, that they didn't want to get rid of the, the 2002 AOMF. Um, Michelle Flournoy told me it's because, you know, withdrawing from a country is a very dangerous time and, you know, different forces could could hit the U.S. during the withdrawal. And so they, we wanted to keep that option on the table to retaliate. Um, Joseph McMillan, another former Pentagon official, says it's a little bit more vague than that. It's kind of the military likes to keep things in their toolbox. They don't like Congress to tie their hands in any way. Where, whatever the reason was, Dempsey's letter just 
killed uh, the repeal. There was Congress voted not to include that amendment in the AUMF. I mean, in the NDAA, and the AUMF stayed on the books. Now, remember, I said that uh, there was an idea that a Republican could send troops back into Iraq. Funny thing happened. Um, ISIS. Well, not very funny. <laughs> it's very dark, actually. But I mean, whether or not we think it was a good idea that the U.S. intervened to stop ISIS, it was politically kind of impossible not to. This mm -hmm. was a group that had essentially declared itself like hostis generis humanis, war against all humanity. Um, it was it had taken over a major city in Iraq. It had taken millions of dollars and like serious uh, U.S. military equipment and um, was also committing a genocide against the Yazidi people. Um, and cherry on top was televising all of its violence against both Iraqis and Syrians and also foreign hostages in ways that were very provocative. And so it's hard to imagine Obama wouldn't get involved to stop this. And so um, first he used and, his power. Before all of this, Obama was actually behind repealing the AUMF, right? Or at least the administration came out saying that they wanted to leave Iraq. Um, no, they had wanted to leave Iraq. But like I said, the the Pentagon had actually opposed taking the AUMF off the books. Right. They'd kind of, the Obama administration's position was kind of, they did say eventually that they supported repealing the 2002 AUMF, but during the withdrawal, the position was, let's keep this on the books while we pull forces out. And then it was never really revisited. Okay. Um, yeah. And so then when Obama intervened against ISIS, first he used Article 2 of the Constitution, which is, um, it's the president's powers as commander of chief in the military. And it's kind of been interpreted to mean that the U.S. has a right to self-defense. I mean, it's, you know, obvious, like, if we get invaded, you can't just wait for Congress to vote before you shoot back. Um, but it, they kind of stretched it a little bit to say that, well, uh, you know, it's not directly against Americans, but it's against American interests. Um, but then as the war became, it went from kind of an emergency response to ISIS to a international campaign led by the U.S. Um, they started to pull out the older AUMFs. Um, the 2002 AUMF, they stretched it a little bit but not too much, right? They said ISIS is an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, which is true, and we're at war with Al-Qaeda under the 2001 AUMF post 9-11. The 2002 AUMF, they said, well, it's a threat posed by Iraq, right? It's a, because, you know, even though a lot of the 2002 AUMF is written to highlight the threat posed by Saddam, the actual authorizing clause doesn't say Saddam Hussein, it says Iraq. Um, and at the same time, though, the Obama administration, they took this weird position, right? They said that Article 2, the 2001 AOMF, and the 2002 AOMF all authorized. We, we have complete authority to do this under these laws. But they were also asking Congress to repeal the 2002 AOMF because they said, basically, we want to replace these, this kind of clunky legal framework with a specific declaration of war against ISIS. And, like, to their credit... They did seem to be genuinely interested, but there was Congress itself kind of couldn't agree on what to replace the AUMFs with because there were some 
who kind of wanted to give Obama a blank check. Like uh, McConnell and Graham proposed a declaration of war against ISIS that talked about all associated forces, organizations, successor organizations. It didn't have, um, oh. didn't put sunset clauses, uh, didn't say that this was a sole source of authority. And then there were others um, like uh, Angle, the head of former head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, who wanted sunset clauses and clear definitions. Right. And so basically everyone agreed we need to get rid of the old AUMFs, but some said we need to make it more restrictive. Others said we need to make it less restrictive. And, you know, obviously no one was against the war against ISIS because, as I said, ISIS was like a real kind of threat to global security that. Mm. Yeah. So when it comes to like the most recent, um, you kind of got into the NDAA, I, I believe it was 2019, where Mike Lee introduced an amendment. Do you want to get into the debate around that and then what culminated into the Soleimani assassination? Uh, actually, Barbara Lee, not Mike Lee. Oh, OK. Yeah, I miss but, right uh, Barbara Lee, I think, was let me just make sure that I'm not getting this wrong. But uh, I think she was the only member of Congress to vote against the 2001 AOMF. Wow. Very, very famous for that. And I think a very unpopular uh, position that has been kind of vindicated, uh, at least in part. Um, yep. But yeah, the OK, so basically the war in ISIS started to wind down in the early Trump administration. Um, there was a sense that, I mean, we were just mopping stuff up. We kept troops in Iraq and Syria for political reasons, but the actual war in ISIS was over. Um, the question of a declaration of war against ISIS, I think, was becoming a bit of a moot point. Uh, but then, you know, the Trump administration started using U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria uh, as a kind of... Uh, they kind of started using it politically so that they could have a foot in the door against Iran because Iran was highly active in both countries. In Iraq, they had intervened... Uh, to stop ISIS in Syria, they'd intervene to keep the Assad dictatorship in power. Um, the U.S. was, you know, also training the Iraqi regular army. In Syria, it was a little bit more complicated. The U.S. was um, pre-Trump. We had been arming Syrian opposition groups. Trump kind of ended that. Uh, but then a Kurdish-led opposition group in the northeast, we had military advisors on the ground um, fighting ISIS, but not the Assad regime. Um, but the presence of U.S. forces there were blocking kind of Assad's influence. And diplomatically, we were kind of sort of behind the scenes trying to prevent the Kurdish-led forces from reconciling with Assad. So point being, this had gone, this force was authorized to fight ISIS under laws that had been authored before ISIS even existed, but was being used as kind of an instrument against Iran. People started to get especially worried in early 2019. Um, this is when the maximum, when the pressure campaign against Iran became the maximum pressure campaign. Um, we were basically trying to blockade, not physically blockade, but legally blockade all Iranian oil shipments. We've since physically started seizing them mm -hmm. out of Iran. Um, there was all sorts of escalations and um, unexplained explosions in the Persian Gulf. Iran was getting very antsy, um, and 
the Trump administration officials started talking to Congress about how Iran is harboring Al Qaeda. So members of Congress got very alarmed. And, and to be clear, there there are Al Qaeda members living in Iran in a kind of half hostage, half guest kind of sense, but it's not, this is not like the Taliban's relationship. They're not actively, as far as we're aware, they're not like actively helping Al Qaeda blow up buildings in New York. Um, so members of Congress got very worried when the Trump administration was talking about this, that um, that they were basically trying to set up a justification for attacking Iran under the 2001 AOMF because they're harboring people responsible for 9-11. Um, and so there were efforts to limit the 2002 AOMF, 2001 AOMF. At the same time, it seems like I haven't seen anything on the record about this, but it seems like there was also some chatter about um, the Trump administration using the 2002 AUMF because the House Foreign Affairs Committee wrote a letter to the State Department asking, does either the 2001 or the 2002 AUMF authorize war against Iran? The State Department said, we don't interpret it that way yet, which was very alarming. And again, people didn't want to touch the 2001 AUMF because there was an active war against Al-Qaeda, but they started proposing laws to restrict war against Iran and to take the 2002 AUMF off the books. That was uh, Barbara Lee with the military budget, the NDAA. Um, the State Department, it passed the House. So it basically came down to whether Senate negotiators, when they reconciled the House version of the budget and the Senate version of the budget, would keep the 2002 AUMF on the books. Um, the State Department started lobbying the Senate. Uh, they had a hearing on July 24th um, where they they made a very strange argument, right? They said that basically they were asked, is there any military operation against ISIS or otherwise that we need the 2002 AUMF for? They said, no, but it's just a little bit extra authority. And they kind of confused the question because they said, um, basically, in a court case on whether they can keep ISIS members detained without trial, the U.S., the Trump administration had used the 2001 AMF, the 2002 AMF, and other presidential powers. The Trump administration told the Senate that they were using the 2002 AMF as extra authority for detainees. So senators kind of walked away with the impression that that the they were using this to that they needed this law to keep isis members locked up when in reality no they were using it as one of three different arguments each of which independently would have allowed them to keep people locked up mm -hmm. um as kind of prisoners of war sorry am i going on too long yeah no problem um that's all great i i was curious though if there was another amendment in that ndaa i think i read about a, a second is that correct Yes, there was one by Rokana and Matt Gates that explicitly said that, you know, war against Iran is not authorized um, unless you come to us and get a new authorization. Yeah. Okay. And then how did they justify the Soleimani assassination then? What was that under? Right. So that was another. Um, so basically, yeah, the. They justified that when they killed Iranian General Soleimani, he was in Baghdad physically. So they mm -hmm. used both the 2002 AUMF, which again is the threat posed by Iraq, 
and also Article 2, President's Commander-in-Chief Powers and Self-Defense, claiming that Soleimani was planning an imminent attack against Americans. Now, they basically outright said, oh, there was not like a specific plot. You know, I think General Milley said, we don't know where or when it would have happened, yeah. but it was in the work. So the Article 2 self-defense argument was very much a stretch. I think the real crux of their justification was the 2002 AUMF because Soleimani was physically in Iraq. Um, and it also they also killed, the strike killed several um, Iraqi militiamen who had been sponsored by Iran but were part of the Iraqi government. Uh, so the 2002 AUMF was, I think, I think they wouldn't have done it if they hadn't had that on the books. Mm-hmm. Was very interesting. There's a lot of conflicting reporting on when the decision was actually made and how it was made to kill Soleimani. Knowing the Trump administration, probably all of it's a little bit true. Probably there was a very chaotic policy process. But what was interesting is that I know that Pentagon lawyers actually went to Senate and House uh, staffer, uh, Senate and House members while they were negotiating over the NDAA and said, please keep the 2002 AOMF in here. And again, they made the argument based on the war against ISIS. But the the, the final NDAA came out on December 3rd, 2019, and the strike against Soleimani was made against was made was done on January 3rd, literally a month later. Mm-hmm. And there is reporting in NBC News that the Trump that Trump had authorized conditionally authorized killing Soleimani um, seven months before, so I believe in June or July. Wow. So it really raises some questions of why the whether the Pentagon had made planning, you know, not just over the military technical aspects of killing Soleimani, but how they were going to justify to Congress. Yeah, so I'm curious. Then um, we got into the discussions about Iran and the potential, like, of them harboring Al Qaeda. Um, how has that conversation bled over into the Biden administration? So I think the Biden administration is, yeah, it's hard to tell what the Biden administration's Iran policy is. Um, you know, they've stated previously that they want to get in back into the nuclear deal, but they want Iran to make the first move. Iran has said that that's a non-starter um, and that they want the U.S. to make the first move. So now both sides are kind of staring at each other going, you go first. No, you go first. Um, Knowing how diplomacy works, it's probably not how it's going to end. There's going to be some kind of back channel conversation. They can choreograph this if they want to. But I do think the Biden administration probably has in the back of its mind the possibility that they might have to escalate against Iran again. All that being said... I think they've expressed a little bit more interest in war powers reform. I mean, they ended U.S. support for the war in Yemen, which Congress had previously voted for and Trump had vetoed. I think, again, I don't necessarily think it's out of the goodness of their heart. No administration and no military officials like to have their hands tied. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think they understand that there's a lot of momentum in Congress. There's a lot of opposition uh, to a war with Iran or generally wars in the Middle East. And there's a lot of threats from Congress to um, tie their hands if they won't tie their own hands. Um, 
So I think they are kind of willing to negotiate with Congress and work with Congress on war powers reform uh, in a way that maybe lets them keep some authorities um, while also giving ground on others. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's it's hard to predict, but I think one thing that we can say for certain is that the Democrats in Congress are much, much more... Uh, <laughs> Because of what happened with Soleimani, and they understand what these kind of AUMFs can be done, what these AUMFs can be used for in the hands of someone like Trump, mm-hmm. there's a lot more of an appetite to reform more powers within congressional Democrats. And I think the Trump administration has taken notice. Yeah. Well, if there's anything else that you feel like we need to cover about that, please do. And then we can let you go. Sure. Um, yeah, there was reporting that Biden was going to sign a forever war executive order um, that was basically going to be a review of all U.S. uh, contingency operations. Um, I don't think it's been signed yet. It's supposed to be signed sometime uh, this this month. But it's um, yeah, it's. Basically, uh, I think the Biden, we, we should see what happens with this review, because I think on one hand, the Biden administration genuinely wants to review what the Trump administration is doing overseas. You know, this is a previous administration that had a very chaotic policy process and was doing some very gray area shady things. So I think Biden's want to get going to want to get a grapple, uh, a handle on that. But I think also the reason that they've kind of teased this out uh, is because they want to delay any action from Congress. Um, they want to tell Congress, look, we're, we're looking into it. Don't don't pull the rug out on dress. Mm-hmm. But I think that Congress is very, very, uh, it's less patient than it used to be. And so it's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch. I mean, you know, there's a million things happening right now with uh, coronavirus uh, and the knock-on effects of that and our just general domestic political instability. But when foreign policy comes on the agenda, um, I think war powers are going to be a big part of it. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. So if you want to share where people can find your social media and stuff like that, that would be awesome. Sure. I'm uh, on Twitter um, at Matthew underscore Petty. Uh, I don't have an Instagram. I uh, don't have a sub stack. Uh, <laughs> but you can also find my articles at responsiblestatecraft.org. Uh, not just mine, but a lot of other wonderful uh, commentary and reporting from other members of the Quincy Institute. And I believe Quincy Institute actually partnered with 20 other organizations to write to Biden today on the day that we're recording. So they're writing to Biden to reform some war power stuff. So it's good timing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This stuff is usually, I mean, it's, yeah. It's usually done by these uh, kind of big coalitions. That's how they uh, that's how they've been doing stuff in foreign policy for a while now. And uh, we'll see if these how much weight these coalitions actually hold. But <laughs> I think it's more than in the past. So yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. Great. Thank you for having me. It's the weekend. We can let go. It's the full send. It's the get go. It's the get-